All right, we're moving ahead in our study through the ancient Christian creed that we confessed earlier called the Apostles' Creed. This is our third week in, uh, in our study through this. It'll take us to the end of the fall semester. And like I said, the last two weeks that we've looked at it, this is, this is an important time uh, as Christians and as the church to be thinking about something like the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because One, because it always is, <laughs> just always is important. Uh, th- this is what uh, one theologian a hundred years ago said. His name is, he was Dutch. His name was Herman Bobink. And he's talking about why things like the Apostles' Creed are just always important and always have been and always will be. He says, he, it's in a chapter where he's been talking about Holy Scripture, and he says, now the church has not received this Scripture from God in order simply to rest on it and still less to bury this treasure in earth. On the contrary, the church is called to preserve this Word of God, to explain it, to preach it, apply it, translate it, spread it abroad, recommend it, and defend it. In a word, to cause the thoughts of God laid down in Scripture to triumph everywhere and at all times in the thoughts of men. And as soon as the church becomes lax in this duty, he says, there soon develops a difference of opinion concerning the meaning of the word. Even in the churches of the apostolic period, various heresies came up. And thus the truth laid down in Scripture leads on the part of all those who believe and embrace it to a confession, to a creed. Confession is the obligation of all believers and is also the dictate of their own hearts. The person who truly believes with his whole heart and soul cannot but confess. That is, to testify to the truth that has made him free and to hope and to the hope that has been planted in his heart by that truth. Thus, every believer and every church, if the testimony of the Holy Spirit be present there, confesses that the word of, confess that the word of God is the truth. And as the errors and heresies grow subtler and subtler, the church is the more compelled to take a careful account of the truth it does confess and to state its creed in definite and unambiguous terms. Naturally, the oral confession becomes, by force of circumstance, also a written confession. So we need to know and and confess these ancient... um, Christian faith clarifying creeds and confessions like the Apostles' Creeds, the oldest one. We need it in every generation from the second century when it was first written to now. But like I said the last couple of weeks, we also need it. I think it's important now to be thinking through it because of this particular cultural moment. We've been so isolated, so um, separated by the pandemic, and still so. I mean, like... There's, there's a number of us here, but there's so many of us that want to be here and can't because they've got COVID or they've been exposed to it. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, we need, need to go back to the basics of our faith and remind ourselves who we are. So, like I said, the Apostles' Creed goes as far back as the 2nd century to the generation just after the death of the Apostles. So we don't know who exactly who wrote the Creed or if just one person did, but the possibility that they could have personally known some of the apostles is not uh, an exaggeration. 
It's not unrealistic. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because it is a faithful summary of the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. It's called an ecumenical creed, ecumenical, because, because uh, it was, and at the time, and still is to this day, a statement of Christian truth that everybody everywhere should agree with. It's just the very basics of the Christian faith. Our fir- first two weeks of this study, we looked at one, we, one, all that was included in those opening words, I believe. It's, it's repeated two more times. What does it mean? What does the creed mean? What does the Bible mean to confess I believe, and we talked about all that was rolled up into that, that um, phrase. And then last week, we looked at the, the first major confession in the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If you missed any of those, by the way, we do have a podcast. Just search Lakeview, Christ- Lakeview College Ministry, and you can find them there. But tonight, we're moving ahead to the next line in the creed, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And to begin somewhere in Scripture, and, and by the way, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight. I'm just going to tell you that ahead of time. Um, I would encourage you to take notes in some kind of way, even if you're not generally a note taker. I would encourage you on this particular night to do so because I'm going to give you a ton of Scripture references, and, um, and you may not have time to flip to all of them as we're doing it, and it would be nice if you had them to look up later on your own. Uh, all right, but to begin our time in a particular Scripture, we're going to, think through, we're going to read through uh, the, uh, the Apostle Peter's confession to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew chapter 16 is where I would like you to start. We won't spend a great deal of time on this passage. We just want to read it to get some context of kind of what this this line in the Apostles' Creed is getting at. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, when you found that chapter, you can just follow along. I'll read aloud beginning in verse 13, and we'll read and I'll read through verse 18. Now this is Matthew 16, beginning of verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I hope by the, by the end of today you'll understand even more significance of that phrase, Son of Man. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, what we just read and all the scriptures that we're going to read tonight are your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We're going to be thinking about the words of 
the Apostles' Creed. We're only doing so insofar as we believe that it is a faithful representation of what your holy, inspired, and errant, and all the attributes we just named are of your word. It's your word that is holy, true in every aspect. So, as we think through what we're going to think tonight and think through the scriptures, would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you give us hearts to embrace and love and be passionate about in an appropriate way what it, what it deserves, the truth that we see? Would you give us uh, wills to obey whatever it leads us to do, even if that thing is just worship and obedience? Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in that passage, Jesus told Peter that it was, it was on this rock, it was on this confession that he just made that he would build his church. And in fact, it is the confession. <laughs> you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is that confession on which the church to this day is built. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are followers of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. So this neighborhood of the creed, which is the longest section of it, it's got a couple of lines for the Father. It's got one line for the Holy Spirit later on. Got a whole paragraph right in the middle for the Son. It's this neighborhood of the creed. It wants us to be clear on who Jesus is and what he came to do for us for our salvation. Tonight, we're just going to think about that, that first line of this section on Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And think very specifically about His deity. Deity, um, which means He is God. Okay. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we're studying through the Gospel of John, this won't be entirely new to you. Um, when we come back next week and we come to the next line of the creed, which is this Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, etc. We're going to talk about his humanity. But tonight it's his deity. Um, those are two truths, deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. He's one person with two natures. These are two natures, two truths about him. He is both God and man that you must have firmly, firmly held in connection with each other. Because um, denying either or both, one is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, which I hope we'll sh I'll show you. And two, undercuts your hope of salvation altogether. So tonight we're going to think about um, why the early church so quickly came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ, even though, as John said, we saw him with our own eyes and we heard him with our ears, we touched him with our own hands, we beheld him. I ate dinner with him, even though he still, why, even though that was true, we still believed this was God in human flesh standing in our midst. Why is this still the bedrock belief, not just of early Christians, but of all Christians to this day? What I want to propose to you tonight as we think, about, think through this is that the evidence in Scripture for the deity of Christ is almost overwhelming. It's not a flimsy belief that we have. Anyone with eyes to see what we're going to see cannot help but see it. So, in fact, if you're taking notes, I want to give you five reasons Five reasons why the Apostles' Creed affirms the deity of Christ when it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Five reasons for scripture, from Scripture. Any one of these reasons 
I would maintain any one of these reasons I think is sufficient in and of itself to prove the point. Take any one of these points in isolation and it, 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 it is enough. Five of them together is an overwhelming amount of evidence. It's a cumulative case. All right. So take notes, not only to remember these five reasons, but the mountain of scriptural evidence that goes with each of them. We'll take them one at a time, so let's go. First reason from Scripture that we believe that Jesus is God is because in Scripture, the names of God are given to Jesus Christ. The names of God are applied to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you four examples under this one heading of names of God applied to Christ. Two of these four that I'm going to give you are reflected in the Apostles' Creed. First of all, Many, many scriptures and uh, scripture passages that just very plainly call Jesus God. That's one name, God. The Greek word in the New Testament for God is theos, and it uses it repeatedly of Jesus. Okay, just calls him God. We've already seen an example of that here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I mentioned it again last week. Uh, uh, from John 1, the opening words of John's gospel, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right? That wasn't the only time, though, that John said something like that. That was John 1, 1. But later he wrote in 1 John 5, 20. 1 John 5, 20, he wrote, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Who is that? In his son, Jesus Christ. So he's talking about Jesus Christ, and here's the last line. He is the true God and the eternal life. He is the true God, John said, 1 John 5.20. John wasn't the only one to say it. The apostle Paul called Jesus God and couple of places at least. In Titus 2.13, Titus 2.13, he wrote, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He used a phrase almost identical to that in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Romans 9, 4, 9, 4 and 5. He wrote, of his own, he's lamenting the, the fact that his own people, the Israelites, uh, have not come to faith in Christ. And they had every advantage to. They should have seen him when he came. They should have recognized the Messiah. Why aren't they believing? And here's what he's saying of them. He says, they are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, comma, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. The Christ who is God over all. That's Romans 9, 4, and 5. So John, Paul, very clear, they're not the only ones. Peter, another apostle, uh, we just saw him in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? But is that the only time he says it? No. In 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 
Here's how he begins that letter. Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, just over and over again. Just, it just calls him God. He's not just Savior. He's our God and Savior. One of my favorites under this heading is given by the Apostle Thomas. The Apostle Thomas in John 20, 28. John 20, 28. Thomas was witnessing with his own eyes the resurrected Jesus. And after initially doubting, you know, Jesus said, touch my side if you don't believe. We're never told that Thomas actually did. But in that moment that he was standing there looking at the resurrected Jesus, his eyes were opened. And, and uh, in verse 28, Thomas falls on his knees and he replies to Jesus, looking straight at him. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Neither Jesus nor anyone else corrected him for this. I say that is one of my favorites because I, I, I chuckle at that verse. It's not a verse that you would typically chuckle at. You'd be like, wow, my Lord and my God. But I chuckle because I, I was talking to Jehovah's Witness one time about that verse. And their response was what Thomas was doing in that was not calling. <laughs> they were not... Is it, so Thomas was not calling Jesus God. They were just, he was just saying, oh, my God. I doubt very seriously that Thomas was breaking the third commandment in that moment and taking the Lord's name in vain. So we've seen so many examples, so many examples. Uh, and others, Hebrews 1.8, just write that one down. I mean, it's, we don't have time to look at it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. I just, Yeah. Uh, I, that's a good one. I could talk about it. we got a lot to cover, though. Just, Jesus is flatly called God over and over again in the Scriptures. But there's another name of God that we'll see is, is divine in its import. Um, it's a title of deity of Jesus, and that's Son of God. Son of God. He's not just called God, but Son of God is also a, a title of deity for Jesus. Um, listen to the testimony of the... Unbelieving Jews in John 5, 18. We'll just look at, at one, well, one verse maybe here. John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So calling himself the Son of God was claiming that he possessed the same nature as God himself. But, they, but they, they understood there's only one God, so he's claiming to be God if he's saying. He's not another God. There's one God. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God when he says, I'm the Son of God. Jesus agreed. When, in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So when he claims to be the Son of God, he's claiming to have the very nature of God himself. Another title in Scripture gives, given to Jesus that Jesus actually uses this title for himself more than any other, and that is Son of Man. Son of Man. If Son of God is a, is, a, is a title of deity of Jesus, what about Son of Man? Does it stress humanity? It would almost think that, but no. 
son of man is almost even more strongly a title of deity than son of God. And like I said, Jesus uses this one more than any other. How, how does it teach the deity of Christ? Because of the Old Testament roots of this name, son of man. Here's, let me just give you two examples of when Jesus used this. Uh, Matthew 24.30. Matthew 24.30. Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, when, and, they, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Also, just two chapters later, Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, Jesus was on trial, and it says that Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Son of God. And here's how Jesus answered. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When Jesus took the title of Son of Man to himself, and certainly when he presented it like that, associated with his coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory, those first hearing that would have known exactly what he was doing, which was what? He was taking something the Old, Pro Old Testament prophet Daniel had said in his prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. He was taking what Daniel had said in Daniel 7 and applying it to himself. Here's what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a good one to write down and remember too. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Sounds exactly like what Jesus was saying, right? One like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, to this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, his, the son of man's dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus was saying about himself when he called himself the son of man. Not his humanity, his deity. We know, we know that it's talking about... Um, Deity, because what is said there, what is said there about the Son of Man in Daniel seven about an everlasting dominion and a, and, a, and a kingdom that will not pass away or be destroyed? A careful reader of the Book of Daniel will know that just a few chapters earlier in Daniel chapter four, those kinds of things were said of God alone. Daniel four thirty four, I blessed the Most High, the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures for generation to generation. Jesus is taking all of that on himself when he says, this, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's basically saying, I'm God. So Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's God. The Apostles' Creed is confessing this when, he, when it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. All that is subsumed into that which highlights also, when it says our Lord, highlights the, the fourth name of God um, that is applied. It's actually part A and part B. Lord and Lord of glory. 
Lord and Lord of glory. You've already seen Thomas, my Lord and my God. Those two things go together. He's not saying, not talking of two different people, my Lord and my God. He's looking at one person, my Lord and my God. Paul in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. and Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is only one God. There is only one Lord over heaven and earth. Jesus is that one God and Lord together with the Father. And to make that, that even clearer, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8. This is where... He refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's a sobering verse. 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. What did Paul think his readers would have thought of when they heard that phrase, Lord of glory? He knew a lot of them would think Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Where in the the latter half of Psalm 24 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is this King of glory. Paul said of Jesus, none of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There is simply no question that the Scriptures call Jesus God. I mean, the evidence for that alone is what we've already looked at is enough to prove the case. He's called, he's called God. Son of God means God. Son of man means God. Lord means God. Lord of glory means God. Over and over and over and over again. But the Scriptures go even further than that. Not only does the Scripture apply the names of, of God to Christ, but here's the second reason I'm going to give. Attributes or characteristics that are true only of God, are true of Jesus. Attributes or characteristics that are only true of God are true of Jesus. That's a strong piece of evidence. What are some of these? I mean, like, think about what what would be some characteristics that are only true of God? There are many characteristics. I mean, here's a little, just a couple of theological words for you. When we talk about the attributes or the characteristics of God, we often categorize them in two types. Fancy word, incommunicable and communicable. Think of a disease, you know, a communicable disease. You can catch it, right? Communicable attributes are attributes that God possesses that he's also given us to share in. So God is love. We love. 
God is patient. We can be patient. God is wise. We can have wisdom, right? But there are incommunicable attributes, things that are only true of God that will never be true of me or you. All right, so one of those examples is eternity. God alone is eternal. You had a beginning. I had a beginning. Everything else had a beginning. And Scripture throughout says that eternity is something that is true, not just of God generally, but Christ specifically. It was prophesied of him in this way in Isaiah 9, 6. You've heard this at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How's that talking about Jesus? It calls him Everlasting Father. Father in that sense of governing all that takes place. The government shall be on his shoulders. Think what we've already seen in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. When time began, that's not when the son began. He was already there. Jesus said of himself in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Eternity is true of Jesus Christ. It's not like the, the, the flesh and bone human nature of Jesus is eternal, but this was eternal Son of God who in space and time took on human flesh. Eternity is, a, is an example of it. Immutability, immutability just means he doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Omnipotence, only God. We have power. We can be strong. We can be weak. Only God is omnipotent, all power, almighty, true of Jesus Christ. John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, think of what he says here. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So, if you agree that the Father is God, Jesus, the Son, says, whatever He does, I do. He's almighty. He's omnipotent. So Jesus outright called God in a multitude of ways, characteristics of God alone are true of him. What else? There's a third strand of evidence, third reason. Jesus does things that only God can do. He does things that only God can do. He's not just called God. Not only does he possess characteristics and attributes that only God possesses, but he does things that only God can do. Like what? We've already seen in, in John's gospel that he is creator of all that is. We can make things. We can fashion things. We can design things. We can manipulate things, but we cannot speak things into being. We cannot create things that did not previously exist by the spoken word. Christ can and did. Genesis 1.1 affirms that God alone is the creator. I think we can all agree with that. But when you come to the New Testament, it clearly says this is also true of Jesus. John 1.3. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. If it is in the made or created category, he made it. He created it. It's only true of God, true of Christ. Paul says this about Jesus. He's creator. In Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Author of Hebrews 1-2, Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's one thing that he does that only God can do. He created all that is. But not only that, what's something else that he does that only God can do? He upholds all things and preserves things in existence. He preserves things in existence. So just think about right after Paul said in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created through him and for him, he followed that up in verse 17, the very next verse, and said, and in him all things hold together. He preserves things in existence. All things hold together. Right after the author of Hebrews said in in chapter 1, verse 2, through whom also he created the world. He followed that up in verse 3, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he creates. That's something that only God can do. He holds things in existence, something only God can do. Scripture says that another thing Jesus does that only God can do is give eternal life. He gives eternal life. Jesus said in John 10, 27, and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not not even, and my Father gives them eternal life, which is true because there's one God in three persons, but he says, I give them eternal life. Jesus prayed. He prayed in John 17, 1 and 2. Father, this is the night... The night before he was arrested, or the night that he was arrested, before he went to the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He gives eternal life. Closely related to this is is one more thing that he can do that only God can do, and that is forgive sins. Forgive sins. The Old Testament could not be clearer that God alone can forgive sins. I mean, that makes sense. It is only against God, ultimately, that we sin. You know, I can only only, uh, forgive sins that you have committed against me insofar as you offended me, but I can't do anything about what you've, you know, the events you've made to God. Only he can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's Isaiah 43, 25. Jeremiah 31, 34, the Lord says, For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's exactly what Jesus said. did when he would just say your sins are forgiven and leave the Jews the unbelieving who's scratching their head 
and then trying to kill him because they knew exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to do something that only God can do. There's more than one example of this, but there's one, one example to suffice here. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Jesus heals a paralyzed man. They let him down through the roof. Remember that guy? And when Jesus saw them late, the house was full of people. They couldn't get in the door. They really, had, they really wanted Jesus to heal this paralyzed man, so they came down through the roof. When Jesus, it says in verse 5, when he's, well, it's leading up to verse 5, uh, he saw their faith. And when Jesus saw their faith of letting that paralyzed man, he said in verse 5, my son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> then in verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they are unbelieving, but they're not wrong with that last part. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's exactly right. That's exactly the question that Jesus wanted them to ask. So beginning in verse 8, it says in Mark 2, beginning in verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves. He's omniscient, too. That's another th characteristic that he possesses that only God possesses. He said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I love this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic man? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed, and walk? That, that, that question puzzled me for a long time. But it dawned on me one day, I, it, I think, I think I, Jesus' point dawned on me. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? If he's asking me that, if he's asking me, Kevin, which is easier for me, for, for Kevin to do? Your sins are forgiven? Or to a paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed, and go home. To me, that's two impossible things. Neither one is easier to say. I mean... Yeah, either one I say, it's not going to happen. So there's two impossible things to me, and that's exactly Jesus' point. That's why he says in verses 10 and 11, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk, and go home. In other words, demonstrating the ability to do one impossible thing proved his ability to do the other. So Jesus is called God in the New Testament. Attributes and characteristics that are true only of God are true of him. He does things that only God can do. He creates. He preserves. He gives eternal life. He forgives sins. Truth, you know. But fourthly, fourth reason, worship, worship belonging to God alone is given to Christ. Worship that belongs to God alone is given to Christ, and he accepts it. I, it could not be clear, and I mean any clearer, that God alone is to be worshipped. I mean, that's the first commandment for crying out loud. You shall have no other gods before me. And everybody seems to be in on that. Everybody, everybody gets that. Here's just some examples of everybody getting that. In Revelation 19, verses 8 through 10, the angels clearly say that God alone. When angels, somebody tries to worship an angel, they're like, stop. Worship God alone. 
That's Revelation 19, 8 through 10. So angels know that God only is supposed to be worshipped. In Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, Peter is at Cornelius' house, and Peter tells them only, only God is to be worshipped. In Acts 14, verses 11 through 15, Paul says only God is to be worshipped when they try to worship him. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus himself, at his temptation in the wilderness, tells Satan, only God is to be worshipped. So Jesus said that. Yet on a number of occasions, Jesus himself is worshipped and he accepts it. Even though he knows and said only God is to be worshipped. One of them is the Magi worship him at his birth. Now, he didn't know he had a right hand and a left hand, humanly speaking. So he's not like, you stop worshiping me. He wasn't going to do that. But elsewhere, as a grown man, Jesus said in John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That's strong. In John 9, Jesus healed a blind man. And in John 9, 38, that blind man finds Jesus again, and he starts to worship Jesus. And Jesus does not correct him at all. He does not say stop. And he, Thomas was worshiping in, 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 in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. And when we talk about the Great Commission, we always focus on what Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, etc., etc. But the verse is right before that. In Matthew 28, 16 and 17, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus is, is worshipped at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in, in, uh, in Luke 19, verses 37 to 40. In none of those places does Jesus say, stop doing that. When angels say stop doing that, Peter said stop doing that, Paul said stop doing that. Jesus knows that only God is supposed to be worshipped, and when he is worshipped, he accepts it. So not only does Jesus receive worship, but the Father commands that we worship the Son. The Father commands that he be worshipped. That's Hebrews 1.6. But not only that. But for all eternity, for all eternity future, we will worship the Son along with the Father, one God. We saw that in Philippians 2 already, and we read that at the very beginning of this worship time, the call to worship. I read you the whole chapter of Revelation chapter 5. And do you remember that when it said, when the worship in, in Revelation 5 is given to him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, the Son. So Jesus is called God in many different ways. Characteristics true of God are true of Jesus. He does things that only God can do. He's worshipped and only God is to be worshipped. But finally, Jesus' own claims evidence his understanding of his own deity. Jesus' words give evidence that he understands his own deity. This is heavily demonstrated in John's gospel. In John 8, 58, Jesus told the Pharisees, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was not saying, 
I'm really, really, really old. No, he was taking, I am is saying, is taking the Old Testament name of God that God revealed himself by to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. Jesus took that name and put it on himself. And that's why the very next verse says, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him to death. They wouldn't have done that for claiming to be really old. And then you have in John's gospel, along with that I am, you have seven I am sayings. Seven of them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. But the most vivid of all, I believe, is again in that prayer in John 17 on the night before he went to the cross. And in John 17, 5, Jesus astonishingly prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why is that astonishing? First of all, did you hear what I said? Second of all, in the Old Testament, God clearly promised in Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. So when Jesus talks about the glory that I had with you before the world existed, how does that square with Isaiah 48:11, where we learn that God does not give His glory to another? What we learn from that is Jesus is not another. He is God. These are five reasons from Scripture why the Apostles' Creed affirms the deity of Jesus Christ when it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Five reasons from Scripture. Names of God are given to Christ. Attributes true only of God are true of Christ. Works only God can do are done by Christ. He receives worship. is commanded to be worshipped by the Father and will be worshipped for all eternity with the Father. And he clearly testifies with his own mouth that he is God with us. And like I said at the outset, I think any one of these truths would suffice to make the point. But when you put all of them together, it almost makes the point inarguable. I mean, you can just not believe it, but you can't say the Bible doesn't say it over and over and over and over again. Hence, we confess with greater confidence and now with hopefully greater understanding, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Before the praise band comes to lead us in a closing song, I want us to, wherever you're sitting, either just with the person you're sitting beside or if there's a group of three of you, the three of you can pray together. Um, do you re- here's how I want you to pray. Do you remember that opening passage that... that Uh, we read from Matthew 16 where Peter confesses who do you say that I am Peter spoke up and said you are the Christ the son of the living God what does Jesus say after that Simon part Jonah flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father in heaven has revealed this to you do you remember also when when uh, 
the two men after the resurrection at, in Luke 24, at the end of the, there's two men on a road to Emmaus, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus walks with them for a while. And Jesus, they didn't even recognize him for a long time, but right before he left, Jesus opened their eyes, and they realized who he was. And it shows you that you can't just conjure it up in your own heart and mind to see Jesus for who he is. All the evidence in the world can be right there in front of you, and you just don't see it. It's a gift of God. So, but it's a gift of God that he wants to give. So I want you to pray with, with whoever you're sitting next to and just pray, all of you, pray. Even if you already see this, you can see it with greater and greater clarity till the day you die. Say, Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me the eyes to see Jesus for who he is. And... Uh, Give me, heart, give me a heart to worship him. That's how I want you to pray for about the next five minutes or so before the band comes to close. Let's, let's pray.